You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading from a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Sun Mystery and the Mystery of Death and Resurrection, Collected Works, Volume 211. This is Lecture 4, entitled Historical Changes in the Experience of Breathing, given in Dornach, March 26, 1922. In recent times, there has been much discussion about the difference between faith and knowledge. In particular, the case has often been made that anthroposophy, based on what it tells us, should be considered a matter of belief, faith, or conviction, rather than a science or a body of knowledge. Essentially, however, all distinctions of this sort are based on a widespread lack of insight into faith as it emerged in the course of human cultural development and on an almost equal lack of understanding of what knowledge is. Faith, along with everything associated with the word, dates back to very ancient times in human evolution, when the respiratory process played a much greater role in human life than it does now. Owing to our present psychological makeup, we do not pay attention to our breathing. We experience nothing in particular when we inhale and exhale. Breathing was important to all the belief systems of ancient times. As I pointed out yesterday, the Old Testament describes how God blew the breath of life into the first human being. You will also recall what I said about how the people of ancient India attempted to achieve higher knowledge by regulating their breathing in specific ways. These attempts made sense at that time, when people in general paid more attention to their breathing and perceived more than just the dead natural world that we perceive today. They beheld soul-spiritual activity in all the objects and processes of the natural world, in every spring, cloud, river, or gust of wind. They attempted to become more and more conscious of their breathing, by controlling inhalation and exhalation, and by holding their breath. They developed self-awareness, that is, the experience of the I, or I am, by controlling their breathing. At that time, however, perceiving and experiencing the breath was part of everyday life. In our ordinary consciousness, we modern human beings have almost no idea of what that was like. Let me try to describe it for you. As you know, the breathing process can be broken down into inhaling, holding one's breath, and exhaling. Usually breathing is regulated naturally, but the yoga masters regulated it deliberately. Just as modern students of science cultivate ways of thinking that are different from everyday thinking, the people of those ancient times cultivated a way of breathing that was different from everyday breathing. Let us focus first on the ordinary breathing, 
not cultivated or yogic breathing. I can do this best by drawing you a diagram. In the human chest, we can distinguish between inhaling, holding one's breath, and exhaling. When the people of ancient times inhaled, they felt the spiritual aspect of the beings and objects of the outer world enter them along with the inhaled air. In this stream of inhalation, they experienced gnomes, nymphs, and all the other soul-spiritual beings of their natural environment. When they exhaled, expelling air, these beings again became invisible and disappeared into the natural world. In inhalation, people recognized the soul-spiritual element in the natural world outside them and felt connected to it and its effect was somewhat similar to intoxication as we know it. People became intoxicated with the soul-spiritual aspect of their surroundings. When they exhaled, they grew sober again. Their life involved a constant alternation of intoxication and sobriety as they interacted with the world around them. There was more to this experience, however, When the yogis of ancient India inhaled and felt themselves become intoxicated with spirit and soul, they also felt soul-spiritual beings filling them and uniting with their bodily existence. This feeling rose quietly from their breathing into their heads. This sensation could be expressed somewhat like this. I inhale the soul-spiritual aspect of the world around me. It fills my head. I sense it. I perceive it as I hold my breath. When I exhale, I relinquish this sensation of spirit and soul. This awareness of breathing, however, was intimately related to everyday life. Consider this very simple example. Here is a piece of chalk. Today, as we look at a piece of chalk, we develop the intention to pick it up, and then we do so. That is not how it worked for the people of ancient times. They looked, inhaled the spiritual aspect of the chalk, then picked it up only as they exhaled. For them, inhalation was bound up with observation and exhalation with activity. This rhythmic interaction with the environment survived into later times, but without the vital perceptive consciousness of ancient times. For example, think back to how threshing was done by hand in the countryside not so very long ago. Look, strike with the flail. Look, strike. Look, strike. The rhythm of the activity corresponded to a specific breathing pattern. At later stages in humankind's evolution, this experience of inhalation was lost to human perception, and we began to perceive only the aspect of respiration that rose into the head. In ancient times, people perceived how inhalation, which was intoxicating for them, continued into their heads and united with sense impressions. Later, this was no longer the case. We have lost the awareness of what happens in the chest when we breathe. We no longer perceive our breathing streaming up into our head because our sense impressions have grown stronger, extinguishing what rises into the head on the breath. The respiratory process, which was very active in the hearing and seeing of people of ancient times, 
is now subsumed by seeing and hearing. In modern humans, the activity of hearing and seeing is so strong that it deadens our breathing. We no longer experience the intoxicating effect of nymphs, gnomes, and undines rising into our head. These flitting nymphs, hammering gnomes, and weaving undines are now overwhelmed by visual and auditory sense impressions. In ancient India, human beings were much more aware of the breath flowing into the head and of everything carried on the breath. This awareness persisted into the next cultural epoch, when people still perceived something of the activity of gnomes, undines, and nymphs in connection with perceptions of sound, light, and color. In the later stages of this next civilization, however, everything perceived through respiration was lost. Some individuals remained slightly aware that cosmic spirit and soul had once entered human beings through their breathing. These individuals gave the name Sophia to the results of the joint activity of sense perception and breathing. Breathing itself, however, was no longer perceived. Its spiritual content was deadened, paralyzed would be a better way to put it, by sense perception. This mingling of ancient and modern modes of perception was especially characteristic of ancient Greek culture. The Greeks had no concept of science as we know it today. If they had been told about the type of science that is taught in modern universities, they would have felt as if their brains were being stuck full of tiny needles. It would have been incomprehensible to them that anyone could derive satisfaction from such a science. They would have experienced it as damaging to the brain, because they still attempted to perceive remnants of the comforting expansion of the intoxicating breath that streamed into them, mingled with sense perception. The Greeks perceived activity in the head, as I have just described it, and they called it Sophia. Those with a special fondness for developing Sophia in themselves called themselves philosophers. Originally the word philosophy pointed to an inner experience. Our horribly pedantic cramming of philosophy as a way of learning about this body of knowledge was unknown to the Greeks. To them the word philosophy expressed the inner experience of loving Sophia. In the human head, the process of inhalation is absorbed into sense perceptions. Similarly, the rest of the body absorbs the process of exhalation. In the metabolism and limbs, bodily sensations and experiences flow together with exhaled air, just as sense perceptions stream into the head together with intoxicating inhaled air. The sobering element of exhaled air, which extinguishes perception, flows together with bodily feelings that arise during walking or working. Activity is linked to exhalation. When the Greeks were active, they felt spirit and soul moving out and away from them. As a result, whenever they did anything or worked on anything, they felt as if they were allowing spirit and soul to flow into what they were doing. They experienced it like this. I take in spirit and soul 
which intoxicate my head and unite with what I see and hear. When I am active I breathe out and this element of spirit and soul leaves me. It goes into my work, into whatever I am hammering or grasping. I release spirit and soul from myself and allow them to stream into whatever I am doing. This is how the early Greeks felt. But then the perception of exhalation as a sobering process faded until only a trace of it remained in Greek culture. In early Greek times people still felt that their activity transmitted spirit to the things they handled. In the end, however, this perception of exhalation was paralyzed by internal bodily sensations such as work-related strength, warmth and exertion or fatigue, just as the flow of inhalation toward the head had been paralyzed. People no longer experienced exhalation as tiring. Instead, when they exhaled, they felt strength or energy pervading their bodies. This strength inside the human body was pistis or faith, the feeling of divine strength that allowed one to work. Thus wisdom and faith flowed together in the human being. Wisdom streamed toward the head and faith lived in the entire body. Wisdom was the content or ideas. Faith was the power of this content. The two belonged together. That is why the only Gnostic work that has come down to us from antiquity is entitled Pistis Sophia. Sophia, or wisdom, is diluted inhalation. Pistis, or faith, is condensed exhalation. In later times, wisdom continued to be diluted until it became science. Similarly, inner strength continued to condense until people felt only their bodies and lost the awareness of what faith or pistis actually is. Because they no longer sensed the connection between Sophia and pistis, people began to separate understanding based on outer sense perceptions from subjective internal belief. First there was Sophia, then Scientia, or ordinary science, a diluted form of Sophia. We might also say that Sophia was originally an actual spiritual being that humans experienced as inhabiting their heads. Today only the ghost of this spiritual being remains because science has become the ghost of wisdom. Actually we should fill our souls with this statement as if with a meditation. Science is the ghost of wisdom. And on the other hand, what we call faith, today is not pistis, the inwardly experienced faith of antiquity. Faith has become a subjective element closely bound up with egoism. It is a condensation of the faith of ancient times. Before faith became condensed, human beings had an objective sense of the divine element in themselves. Today faith rises up only subjectively, so to speak, like smoke from the body. Just as science is the ghost of wisdom, so to speak, modern faith is a condensed, heavier version of the faith people once experienced. If we succeed in seeing the relationship between faith and wisdom, we will not make superficial judgments, such as, Anthroposophy is a system of beliefs, not a science. People who say this do not know what they are talking about. They are unaware of the connection between faith and wisdom ignorant of the historical fact that they were once experienced inwardly as one. 
In our circles, we must present history as it is presented nowhere else. Where else do we hear history talked about in this way? Where else do we hear what breathing once meant to human beings when it was a totally different experience from what it has become today? A formerly very real element of spirit and soul has become very abstract. Conversely, the ensouled body has become robustly material. Where else can people become aware of these historical changes? At a certain point in the evolution of faith, it became necessary for humanity to incorporate a very specific content into ancient beliefs. In ancient times, human beings experienced the divine through faith, in their exhalation, but eventually all awareness of this aspect of the respiratory process was lost. People were no longer conscious of a divine element leaving their bodies and entering the objects they handled. This divine element in human consciousness needed to be re-enlivened, and this was accomplished by taking in an idea with no outer earthly reality. On earth the idea of the dead rising up out of their graves has no outer reality. The mystery of Golgotha has no real content if we consider Jesus' biography only up to his death. There is nothing special about that. Modern theology sees nothing special in Jesus anymore because it describes him as a human being who underwent certain experiences and then died. There is nothing special about that. The actual mystery begins only with the resurrection, with the living activity of the Christ being after his physical body passes through death. To paraphrase the words of Paul, those who do not accept the idea of the resurrection into their consciousness do not receive Christianity at all. Consequently, modern Christian theology is really unchristian, since it studies only Jesus, not the Christ. Of necessity, Christianity entails an idea based on a reality that is not immediately accessible to our senses. This idea lifts human beings into the supersensible world. The people of ancient times were lifted into the supersensible world by an inner experience. Yesterday, I described how yoga students were taught to experience the inner life of a baby. In the first impressions of babyhood, they experienced the soul activity that shapes the human body, <clears throat> something that people otherwise know nothing about. Simultaneously, however, they also became conscious of all of their life prior to birth or conception, when the human soul lives in the spiritual world before descending to take on a physical body. Today, all that remains of this experience is an idea expressed in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. If you do not become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdoms of the heavens. This verse is based on ancient experience, but at the time of its writing it had no real life anymore. It simply recalled a time when people could go back to their infancy to experience the heavenly kingdoms, the realms that left they left to descend into physical existence through birth. Most people today do not imagine anything of consequence when they read about the heavenly kingdoms in the Bible or any other ancient source. Their line of thinking goes something like this. All right, I know what kingdoms are. We have kingdoms on earth. 
England is a kingdom. The globe is divided into nations, many of which are or used to be kingdoms. So there are kingdoms in the heavens, just like kingdoms on earth. But if we imagine heavenly kingdoms as divisions similar to earthly kingdoms, we get no real sense of the meaning of the modernized expression, kingdoms of the heavens. The Gospels say that we cannot see these kingdoms, also known as the kingdoms of, kingdom of God. Most people do not think about it at all. They simply hear the sounds of the words. A diagram may help. If the earth is here in the center, the heavens of ancient times are the surrounding sphere of the cosmos. But what was meant by kingdom? Clairvoyants do not simply see in higher worlds, they also hear the cosmic word that rings and resounds through the heavens. If we cannot become as little children, we cannot hear the word that speaks out of the heavens. When we imagine earthly kingdoms, we should secretly imagine the rulers of those kingdoms speaking or singing so loudly that their voices are heard throughout their domains. The old custom of preceding proclamations with trumpet blasts in the four directions is a symbolic expression of the resounding that makes the kingdom a reality. The kingdom was not the geographical area people inhabited. It was the content of the laws proclaimed by the trumpeting angels. All this, however, had become nothing more than a memory related to the world of ideas or thoughts. Another more will-related idea was needed because the will is what accompanies us when we pass through the portal of death. When we die, the energy we have developed in our will accompanies us along with its content of cosmic thoughts. And the new idea of the risen Christ, the one who lived although his earthly body died, addresses our will. This new and powerful idea was no mere recollection of babyhood. It pointed in the other direction toward death and appealed to the element that accompanies human beings through the portal of death. Thus the dawning of the Christ idea, the Christ impulse, is founded in human evolution. It was a necessity of human evolution. This is an extremely important, even essential, truth. Consider what Hindus or Buddhists experience in perceiving, feeling and thinking about the world of minerals, plants and animals. They take all this with them through the portal of death to enrich the knowledge of the gods in the supersensible world. But what do Christians take through the portal of death? They take their experiences of social relationships and connections with other human beings. In other words, everything that we can experience only as human beings in the company of other human beings, through human fellowship on earth. We might say that Buddhists take earth's beauty with them through the portal of death, while Christians take earth's goodness. These contributions are complementary, but Christianity represents an advance over Buddhism in that it allows the heavenly worlds to understand earthly social circumstances. But many people on earth today know nothing about the Christ. To be quite honest, most of those who do know about him are poorly informed. Nonetheless, they do learn something about the Christ, even if modern materialism prevents them from developing the right ideas and feelings about him. Many people on earth, however, are still living under older, different forms of religion. Yesterday I hinted 
at the very significant question that we now confront. I said that the mystery of Golgotha is a fact. The Christ died for all human beings. The Christ impulse is a power that is present throughout the earth. In this objective sense, regardless of their awareness of him, the Christ is present for Jews, pagans, Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, and so on. Ever since the mystery of Golgotha, the Christ has actually been present in the forces of earthly and human evolution. Nonetheless, it does make a difference whether an individual lives in a Christian area or a non-Christian part of the globe. We can learn to understand the difference it makes only if we see the connection between a person's earthly life and the subsequent life between death and rebirth. Hindus or Buddhists die without having absorbed any ideas or feelings about the Christ during life on earth. What they then take with them into the supersensible world beyond death is limited to what they learned about outer nature here on earth. The heavens would know nothing about the natural earthly world if they were not informed by human beings who enter the heavenly kingdoms through death. This is the only way the supersensible worlds learn about earthly minerals, plants and animals. But those who know about the Christ, and especially those who know that the Christ lives in them, that is, those who have experienced Paul's, not I, but the Christ in me, take with them not only information about the earth itself, but also information about human beings and their life in earthly bodies. The contributions of Christians complement those of Hindus, Buddhists, and others. Of course, it is becoming increasingly necessary for human beings to carry all of the mysteries that they can experience in and through themselves into the heavens. In other words, it is becoming ever more important for human beings to be completely imbued with the Christ. Above all else, however, it is important for the heavenly worlds to receive what human beings can experience only through Christianity and in the company of other human beings on earth. No matter how many people non-Christian tyrants behead, they have little impact on the world of the afterlife. Their impacts are limited to their victims' outer impressions of abhorrence and so on, which are carried through the portal of death. But the lack of love that develops as a consequence of miserable social conditions in Christian areas, for example, and false socialisms, misjudgments of societal relationships, are of great significance for the supersensible worlds we enter after death. People carry their terrible experiences of socialism's destructive power into the afterlife, along with the loveless human relationships of the age of materialism. Through Christianity, we are meant to carry our experiences of the outcomes of human activity and earthly evolution into supersensible worlds. Our thoughts about the risen Christ, about the being who underwent death, yet still lived, make us capable of carrying what we ourselves cultivate on earth into, supersens- into spiritual worlds. People who do not want their social deeds to be carried through death have a horror of acknowledging the risen Christ. The sense-perceptible world, however, is connected to the supersensible world, and it is impossible to understand the one separate from the other. We must again learn to understand what happens on earth by understanding cosmic spiritual events. 
Instead of talking in abstract terms about spirit and matter, we must learn to contemplate how human beings once felt themselves connected to the divine spirit and soul of the cosmos through breathing. We must learn to experience cosmic soul and spirit in ways appropriate to our times. There is no other way to restore health to societal circumstances on earth. Loudly demonstrating for improved social conditions accomplishes nothing. The decline will continue unless we become increasingly and truly imbued with the Christ, which is not simply a matter of intoxicating ourselves with words that have no content. In ancient times it was appropriate for people to become intoxicated through breathing, but it is not appropriate for modern people to become intoxicated with words. Words must pervade us with wisdom, like Sophia. This is how anthroposophy relates to modern issues of social importance. The very name, anthroposophy, anthroposophia, is meant to express the fact that anthroposophy is a new wisdom. In ancient Greece, the individual I became a matter of common experience, and Sophia was human wisdom, because human beings were still full of the wisdom of light. Our modern science is the mere ghost of Sophia. Consequently, we must now appeal directly to the human being, the Anthropos, through Anthroposophy. We must make people aware that Anthroposophy comes from human beings, shines out of human beings, develops out of human beings' best forces. In this sense, Anthroposophy enlivens human existence on earth. Our experience of Anthroposophy is more spiritual but no less concrete than the ancients' experience of Sophia. Anthroposophy, like Sophia, is also meant to evoke pistis, the faith that completely pervaded human beings. Thus, anthroposophy is not a belief system, but a true body of knowledge that provides individuals with strength of a sort that was formerly accessible only through faith. The end of Lecture 4